We're going to be looking this morning at verses 29 through 41. Matthew 24, start in verse 29 and go through verse 41. Let me read the passage and then ask for God's blessing on us as we consider His Word. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. And they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, recognize that he is near. Right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, and one will be left. Would you bow with me, please? Father, we have gathered with joy to worship this morning, to worship the Christ, the Anointed One, the King, who came... In glory, though it was veiled because of his manhood. And died triumphantly. Rose victoriously. Ascended kingly. And is coming back. O glorious day. Thank you, Father, that this Savior is no absent Savior. That this king is no absent king, but he is a certain king who will come to reign on his certain throne. Would you guide us in joy as we consider what we believe is his soon return? And might that bolster us towards holy living and evangelistic speaking. We pray these things, Father, asking that this word would shape us and that we would be encouraged by it 
and that you would be honored as we unfold its truth. In Christ's name, amen. On January 1, 2000, the Wall Street Journal looked back over some predictions that had been made over the preceding 100 years about what people anticipated life might look like on January 1, 2000. In 1950, popular mechanics surmised, quote, the housewife of 2000 can do her daily cleaning with a garden hose. Why not? Thanks to plastics, everything is waterproof. In 1966, you're going to love this one, Time magazine predicted, remote shopping, while entirely feasible, will flop. Because, (laughs) I didn't say this, Time Magazine did. Because women like to get out of the house to handle merchandise and like to be able to change their minds, end quote. In 1927, Rudyard Kipling suggested that by 2000, automatic, excuse me, atomic powered zeppelins will zip along at 300 miles per hour. He was not the only one who ever overestimated travel changes. As late as 1975, Arthur C. Clarke from the People's Almanac anticipated that, quote, cars without wheels will float on air, bringing about the passing of the wheel. 1900, the Ladies' Home Journal hoped that strawberries as large as apples will be eaten by our great-great-grandchildren for their Christmas dinners a hundred years hence. In 1966, Time Magazine again suggested that by 2000, machines will be producing so much that everyone in the U.S. will, in effect, be independently wealthy. Similarly, in a now often quoted article, Marvin Setron and Thomas O'Toole of Forecasting International predicted in 1982, only 18 years before 2000, that in 2000, there will be shorter work weeks, 25 hours by 2000. Flexible schedules will be the rule, with two or three people sharing a job and arranging their shifts. Um, Maybe they missed that one. And in a prediction that didn't make it by 2000, but unfortunately did by 2020, in 1980, Alvin Toffler in Third Wave wrote this, Computers and communications can help us create community. If nothing else, they can free large numbers of us to give up commuting. The centrifugal force that disperses us in the morning throws us into superficial work relationships while weakening the more important social ties in the home and community, end quote. He was more spot on than he ever thought he might be. As we think about the future, it's important to be wary about making predictions. But there are some predictions that the believer in Jesus Christ can make about the future because God has revealed the future to us in part. And this morning we want to consider one of those revelations about the future. We want to consider the future of King Jesus. From Matthew chapter 24, while we don't have all of the details in this chapter of what the kingdom will be like, we do know this. 
that in the future, King Jesus will return to earth and he will be king over all. He will return and he will be king. We want to look at verses 29 through 41. We will spend most of our time in verses 29 to 31. And in this section, we will find four realities about the future of King Jesus. Four realities of the future of King Jesus. The first is given to us in the opening verse, and it is that the king will return. The king will return. When we come into the middle of Matthew chapter 24, we are dropping into one of the longest sermons of Jesus called the Olivet Discourse. It encompasses all of Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. It is, in fact, a response to a question that comes from the disciples in 24.3. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? So tell us, Jesus, when will you return and what will, how will we know when you're about to come back? These, um, this discourse is loosely connected as well to chapter 23, verses 37 to 39. Jesus recognizing that Israel had rejected him as the Messiah lamented over them, said in verse 38, Behold, your house, Israel, is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples were asking the question then, What's that going to look like then? When will you come back? What will that coming look like? These chapters also fall under the shadow of the cross. This is chapter 24. His triumphal entry was in chapter 21. If you turn forward just a couple of pages, we understand that this was given again in the final week of Jesus before the cross. Notice 26.1. When Jesus finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the son of man is to be handed over for crucifixion. So as Jesus spoke these words, he was not only anticipating the long-term future and his soon return, but he was anticipating as well the cross of Christ. In the opening section of this chapter, he delineates what the tribulation is like. Notice he says in 29, in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark. And so after the tribulation... And the tribulation is what he has unfolded in these opening verses. In verses 4 to 8, Jesus tells us about what the first three and a half years of the tribulation will be like. The seven-year tribulation where God is pouring out his wrath and judgment on the earth. A time in which half the population of the earth will die. In the first half, verses 4 to 8, he tells about false Christs that will come. About the wars that will happen. About famines, earthquakes, and death. And just by way of reminder, you understand and remember that we understand that this is a time that is not for believers, that the believers will be raptured out before this unfolding of God's wrath and judgment. Uh, we don't have time to unpack all of that today, but just, just one verse to encourage your heart in that arena. 
First Thessalonians chapter 1, he says in verse 9, They themselves report to us about what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned from to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That is, there is no wrath for those of us who are in Christ. That wrath has been paid by Christ at the cross. And so the wrath that will come in the tribulation will be poured out against this world, against unbelievers, but believers will be taken out before the unfolding of that wrath. So in verses 4 to 8, Jesus tells us what the first half of that tribulation is like. In verses 9 to 14, he tells us what the second half of the tribulation will be like. He tells us about the Antichrist, about the persecution of Israel, verses 9 to 13, and about the preaching of the gospel, verse 14, that will take place in those final days of the tribulation. Then in verses 15 to 28, Jesus reveals specific signs about the tribulation, the emergence of the Antichrist, persecution that comes from the Antichrist, verses 16 to 20, the greatness of the tribulation, that is the greatness of the suffering and the trouble, the trials. And of those days, we understand from Zechariah 13 that more than two-thirds of the nation of Israel will perish. Tribulation indeed. And now coming to verse 29, Jesus tells us this, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, when those seven years are completed, then the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky. These are events that are prophesied in Zephaniah chapter 1. Alluded to again in Joel chapter 3, there is the darkness of the daytime, there is darkness of the nighttime, just absolute darkness. The day is dark, the night is dark, there's no, no, there's no moon at night, there are no stars emanating light at night, everything is darkness. And Jesus adds from those Old Testament passages, not only will there be no light from the sun, the moon, the stars... But the powers of the heavens will be shaken. That could be a reference to something like a summary term. Everything that is in the heavens that is created, sun, moon, stars, all of it is going to be darkened, shaken up, scattered, if you will. Or it could be that he's referring to spiritual powers So that both in the physical world, sun, moon, and stars, and in the spiritual world, the forces of darkness, all of them will be shaken up, overturned, and diminished. Either way, what we understand from this verse is that Christ is supreme and will manifest in His coming His authority and His power. Says one commentator, When the Lord withdraws the least of his power from the universe, nothing in it will function normally. And every aspect of the physical world will be disrupted beyond imagination. All of the forces of energy, here called the powers of the heavens, which hold everything in space constant, will be in dysfunction. The heavenly bodies will careen helter-skelter throughout space and all navigation, whether stellar, solar, magnetic, or gyroscopic, will be futile because all stable reference points and uniform natural forces will have ceased to exist or else become unreliable. 
Can you just imagine what life will be like and the terror and the fear? If people have been so overwrought with COVID, what will happen when the stars fall from the sky, literally? And then, verse 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear. Everything goes dark and the Son of Man shows up. There is much debate over what the sign of the Son is. Notice that Jesus says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. He doesn't say the Son of Man will appear, not immediately. He'll get to that at the end of the verse. But the sign will appear. And there has been great amounts of ink spilled over that issue. Chrysostom and Origen in the ancient church thought that it would be a huge burning cross in the sky. I kind of doubt that, but I could be wrong. Others suggest that it's the trumpet from verse 31. A great trumpet will be shouted. The angels will come gather his people. And so it's the sound of the trumpet announcing the return of Christ. It's possible. Others have suggested it is the Shekinah of God, the the great outshining of the glory of God and the full manifestation of His glory lighting up the heavens. Others have suggested that it is the coming of Christ Himself. So the sign of the coming is His coming. I can't say it with definitiveness, but I think what God is going to do in that day is He is going to shut off every eminence of light to create this massive black backdrop against which his light shines forth. And in the midst of the darkness, men will see the great light of God. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn And they will see the Son of Man coming. What is important for us to see in these opening verses is simply this. As bad as things are now in this world, and I can just hardly look at a newspaper. I get a news feed from two news sources on my phone, and I just honestly... I wipe them away almost as quickly as I as I get them coming in because I just can't stand to read it. And as bad as it is now, we have no concept of how horrid it will be. Notice verses 21 and 22. For then there will be great tribulation Christ says there, there's, there's immense trouble, great trouble, tribulation, suffering, trial. How great, Jesus, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. The world has never seen the kind of trouble that will show up in that day in the outpouring of God's wrath. 
And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. Everybody and everything would have been wiped out unless God cut it short. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. As bad as it will get, Christ will return and He will rectify all things. Brother and sister, we need to live here. That Christ will come against the backdrop of blackness. His radiance shines forward and He fixes all. Not most, not some, not a little. He fixes all. He recompenses all injustice. Everything ungodly will be atoned for in some way. He will do what is right against all the wrongs of the world. So the evil that we see in this world, personal sin and political injustice and cultural wars are not victorious. Christ is victorious. Every evil is doomed to failure and God will judge it all in His coming. Brothers and sisters, when we consider the evil of this world and we consider the coming of Christ to judge that evil, it ought to loosen our grips on the world so that we don't hold tightly what the world says, hang on to. Because it will go away. It's terrifying news for the world, frankly, these verses. But the great news for us is that Christ will return. How will He return? Notice verse 30. He will return with glory. The sign of His coming will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That word tribes could refer to all of the people groups all over the world. So all around the world, there will be people who are grief-stricken and turn to God in repentance. And that's certainly a possibility. But there's another possibility for the translation of the word earth. And the word earth in other contexts can sometimes be translated land. And so we might render it this way, and all the tribes of the land will mourn. And given that Jesus has been talking about the nation of Israel and God's promises to Israel and the outpouring of wrath against Israel as well as the world, particularly Israel and his judgments against her for her rebellion in the tribulation, I think that what he's saying here is that all of the tribes of the land of Israel will look and mourn. This is God's salvation of his covenant people, Israel. In fact, it's the very thing that is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 12. You can turn back just a few pages you don't remember where Zechariah is, the last books of the Old Testament, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. So go to the beginning of Matthew and go left, just a few pages to chapter 12. 
And follow along as I read, starting in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, that's Israel, and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will see the Son of Man coming and they will look on him, the one whom they crucified. Verse 10, middle of the verse. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Who's going to do that? Verse 11. In that day. There will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadadrimmon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. The family of David by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives by themselves. And the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives by themselves. All the families that remain, every family by itself and their wives by themselves. All the tribes of the land will look to him and will mourn and be saved. Notice that in this verse, Jesus also refers to himself twice as the son of man. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. They will look and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds. That second reference is a quotation from Daniel chapter 7. The promise of the coming of the Son of Man as the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one who has, according to Daniel chapter 7, one who has access to the Ancient of Days is presented to, to him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pay, pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. He is the one who is coming on the clouds. Isn't it interesting? That when Jesus left this earth in Acts chapter 1, he left in the clouds. And when he returns, he returns in the clouds. Now, we don't typically think of the clouds as being anything particularly special or powerful. But it is like Jesus is coming with an infinitely bright lightning bolt from heaven. In fact, that's alluded to. Earlier in this chapter, verse 27, For just as lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He comes in the clouds and the light that is associated with the clouds and the brightness and the brilliance, demonstrating His power and His authority. How extensive is His power? Oh, his power is over everything in the physical realm. One of my very favorite verses in Scripture, Zechariah 14, verse 4. In that day, 
His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley so that half of the mountain will move to the north and the other half toward the south. I have, I have stood. I, I, I stood on the Mount of Olives two years ago. And I thought of this verse. How powerful is the returning king? His feet will simply touch the earth. And a large valley. Large enough so that the whole city of Jerusalem will be able to escape its persecutors. Will be created. Oh, he is coming as a king with power and authority over the physical realm. He is coming as a king with power and authority over the political realm. Revelation 19. The returning king comes and from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as he and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. From his mouth comes a sword. What's that? The word of God. He defeats the nations with a word. I don't know what that word is. But it could be as something as simple as death. And they are dead. A simple word defeats the nations. His power is over the physical realm. His power is over the spiritual realm, political realm. His power is over the spiritual realm. So we've seen the salvation of Israel in verse 30. And then we see the judgment of unbelievers. 1920 of Revelation, the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword which came from the word of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Everyone who has rebelled against him will pay the ultimate price. He is coming with glory, and authority, and power. Every other glimpse we have of Christ's glory to this point has been veiled, as it were. It was brief. We see his glory and his power in the miracles. Peter, James, and John saw a glimpse of his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. But then on that day, the fullness of his heavenly glory will be revealed and all will see him and know. He is God and he is King and he is Lord. He is majestic. The future of King Jesus is to come in glory and to be glorified. The future of King Jesus also will be marked by a return for his people. Verse 31, and he will send forth his angels. At Christ's first coming, the angels were the heralds of his advent. The king is here. 
at his second coming, the angels are gathering servants. They gather in two ways. We saw this last week, chapter 13. They gather some for wrath and judgment who do not believe in Jesus Christ. We saw that in 1341, 49. We see it as well in 25. Uh, chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory, all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne and the nations will be gathered before Him. The angels will be those who gather the nations to Him for judgment. And here, they are not only heralds and they are not only those who gather for judgment, but they are those who gather as instruments of salvation. God is gathering His people. God has promised to preserve His people. They will not endure the failure of His covenant, but His covenant will be kept as far back as Deuteronomy chapter 30. God promises to gather the nation of Israel When these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I commanded you today, you and your sons, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity, have compassion on you, and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you and from there He will bring you back. When we read in verse 31, He will send forth His angels. It's a fulfillment of a promise that goes back as far as Deuteronomy 30. The blowing of the trumpet that we find in the middle of this verse that is accompanying the sending of the angels is a typical means in the Old Testament for a gathering. It's a calling to gathering God's people together. And specifically, here he is gathering his elect from the four winds. The elect could refer to a gathering of all people from all over the world who have been saved during the tribulation. That's certainly possible. But it's probably better to understand that Jesus is, is thinking here about specific information about the, about Israel and the end of the age for the nation of Israel. So verse 30, he's talking about the salvation of Israel, the tribes of Israel, the tribes of the land looking to the Messiah in repentance and faith. And here he is speaking about the regathering of that covenant people, the nation that has been scattered to the four winds, to the ends of the earth, as he talks about. In Deuteronomy 30, now they are regathered to God. The history of Israel in Scripture is a history of suffering and disobedience, punishment, discipline, exile, sorrow. But none of those words is God's final word for Israel. His final word is that the promised king is coming for the explicit purpose of bringing his chosen people, his elect people, back to himself. This is the kind of God and king 
that Israel has and that we have. He is the kind of king that keeps and fulfills promises. He is the kind of king that is trustworthy. What's the future of King Jesus? The future of King Jesus is that he will gather his people and he will be with them forever. There's one final aspect to his return that we need to see, and we're going to see this in verses 32 to 41. The king will return, and it comes with a warning. While the return of King Jesus is good news, it's not good news for all. It will be terrible news for those who do not believe in him. And Jesus explains that in both a parable and a historical analogy in these verses, verses 32 to 41. The parable from the fig tree is obvious. Learn the parable of the fig tree. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. I do not have a green thumb. You could not describe my thumb as being brown enough. I kill everything I touch, and what I don't kill, I mow over. But even I know, somebody else has a green thumb, yeah, amen that. Or somebody else has a brown thumb, excuse me. Um, but even I know that at the appropriate time when you get blossoms, spring is over. Even I know when you have a confused peach tree like we did and that sends out its blossoms in the middle of January, that's not a good time. I don't think it's going to finish well for you. And when Snowmageddon comes a month later, we got nary a peach from that tree out of thousands of blooms. It was beautiful. Um, it's now in my woodpile waiting for the rest of winter to be burned. We know, don't we? March, April, May, here come the blossoms. The blossoms set, the fruit's coming, summer's here. In the same way, Jesus says, you know, summer's here, the harvest is coming. Those little peaches on the occasional year when they actually set, you'd see them set and you'd watch them start to grow. And, you know, they were no bigger than my pinky fingernail and I started salivating. Because I knew harvest is coming. That's what Jesus is talking to you about. So you too, verse 33, when you see these things, when you see the things at the beginning of this chapter, the tribulation, the trials, the Antichrist, the persecution, know that he is near. He's right at the door. He's close. He's not just close in proximity. He's imminent. He's about to walk in the door. He's coming in. And there's a certainty to this. Verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now the question is, wait, 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 wait. Uh, but Jesus said this like 2,000 years ago. And that generation is long gone. So what does he mean? I think what he means really is quite simple. This generation, referring not to the generation of when he was speaking, but the generation of people that sees all of the signs 
of the opening part of this chapter. That generation, when they see that, that generation will not pass away until everything that has been promised takes place. There's a certainty to it. He reemphasizes it in verse 35. Heaven and earth pass away. Everything else that we know passes away. But my words, my promise will not pass away, will not die, will not fail. This will happen. Now, what's the question everybody has? When? When's it coming, Jesus? In fact, after the crucifixion, Acts 1, the first question the disciples asked him, now, Jesus, is now the time? When is it? Verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows Not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. No one knows. No man knows. Well, which men don't know? I'm going to tell you how much a man can't know that, but I'm not even going to give you an example of a man that can't know it. But the angels in heaven don't know, and the Son of Man doesn't know. That is, Christ in His incarnation, in His manhood did not know the time of his return. Now, as deity, he did know. As man, he did not know. And what we find there is just Christ's willing submission to the humanity that he took on at the incarnation. He didn't know. If the angels don't know, and if Christ in his humanity doesn't know, then no one knows. It just seems obvious, doesn't it? A third century clergyman using the dimensions of Noah's Ark. How did that relate? I don't have a clue. Speculated that Christ would return in AD 500. Missed that one. Pope Innocent III added the number 618, which was the establishment, the year of the establishment of Islam. And the number 666, the mark of the beast, and came up with the year 1284 for Christ's return. In 1415, the Taborites thought that Christ would return after they defeated their German persecutors, so they attacked. Didn't go so well. William Miller proposed that Christ would return between 1843 and 1844. Nope. In 1988... Wizenant Edgar wrote 88 reasons why the rapture will be in 1988. He missed that one, so he tried again in 1989 and 1993 and 1994. Nope. I agree with one theologian who said it this way. Speculation regarding the time of the second coming is nothing less than blasphemy. For the one who so speculates is seeking to wrest from God secrets which belong to God alone. It's His truth. It's His timing. When? I don't know. Do you have an idea? No. Do you think it's soon? Yes, but so did Paul. And in the economy of God's timing, it is soon, no matter when it is. 
Because a thousand years is just a day. It's only been two days since Jesus has been gone. It's soon his return. It's soon. Listen, we don't know the time. But there are signs. And those who are in that day need to be attentive and watchful and take them as a warning. The point that Jesus is making is that they must learn. Notice verse 32. Learn from the parable of the fig tree. Get an understanding. Integrate that understanding into your life. Prepare. Get ready. Be attentive. In that day, be watchful. Verse 37. Because the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. Here he gives the historical analogy. And watch what was happening then. In those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Now, Genesis 6 and 7 don't tell us this. But Peter, in his epistle, 2 Peter chapter 2, tells us that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So you can just imagine, one day, Noah is hammering nails, gathering wood, cutting wood, fitting pieces, measuring. And the next day he's preaching. Someone comes to talk to him. Noah, what are you doing? I'm building a boat. What's a boat? It's what you get in when there's water. What's water? It's what falls out of the sky. We've never seen that. Repent. Because God's going to judge with water like you've never seen. Repent. And they laughed him off. Eating and drinking. That's ordinary stuff every day, right? You get up in the morning, you grab a glass of water, a cup of coffee and a bagel, a cup of yogurt. Acting as if Nothing unusual is going to happen that day. Marrying and giving in marriage. Planning for the future. I have all the time in the world. The same thing happened. Jesus said in verses 40 and 41, there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. The men in the field, they're seeing the signs of Christ's coming. And they're saying, we've got all the time in the world. Let's plant a crop. We'll get a good crop. We'll make a sale. We'll, we'll engage in profit. And we'll, we'll get these riches. It's all ahead of us. Two women grinding at the mill. Getting the food for the day. It's just another day. It's an ordinary day. In both cases, one is taken in judgment. Just as in the day of Noah, the ones who were taken were the ones who were outside the boat. And one will be left to enter into the millennial kingdom. Jesus is saying, watch. It's going to come suddenly. It's going to come finally, and it's going to come completely. And what we find in this section is, is that Christ is coming in great glory, but He's also coming in judgment. And those who are here will need to watch. As believers, we're not destined to undergo those days, but there are several ways that we should respond to this. Oh, brothers and sisters, this should be such an encouragement to you. The Christ is king and he has a future as king. 
He will come. He will rule. He will reign. We don't need to wring our hands over the front page of the newspaper. This is also an exhortation for how we should live. To pursue righteousness and purity. To be conformed to the gospel that saves us. And we should live with boldness with the gospel. Saying Christ is coming. Not predicting the time, but predicting the reality. And brother and sister, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, can I just say, you've been given a warning today. He's coming. And He's coming in judgment. And I appeal to you that you cannot escape His wrath any more than they will be able to escape His wrath in that day unless you do what they did and look to the one who has been crucified and grieve over your sin, mourn for your sin, and turn to Him in repentance and faith. If you are not brokenhearted over your sin, and you are delighting in your sin, and you don't care about Christ, can I appeal to you this morning? That has no good end for you. It only has wrath. Turn from your sin and look to the Christ who can save you. He is coming. He is the King. That is His future. Our Father, we thank You for the richness of these promises and for the glory of the One who will keep these promises. Cause us to walk with You in obedience because of the anticipation of the future of our King Jesus. And might we be bold in proclaiming the gospel of King Jesus and His soon return. In Christ's name, Amen.